Well, it's good to see you. We're going to be in the book of uh, John to start off today. If you could turn with me to John and chapter 6, I would appreciate that. John chapter 6. We are continuing again through our series called His Mercy is More. And uh, as we look at this, this series, uh, it's, it's a lead up to Easter. Really, really for us, we want to embrace uh, and see God's mercy in this huge way as he, as he came to redeem mankind, as he came to the cross to offer himself as an atonement for our sin. And as he rose from, from dead, saying, hey, death has no hold on me. If you have faith in me, death won't have a hold on you either. Uh, his mercy is more. And last week we saw this, this really depressing and devastating desperateness when we looked at the state of our own sin and that everyone is sin, sinful. There's not one person that's good. That we all sin and we've all fallen short of God's glory and that has separated us from God. And it's a daunting position to be in. It's a daunting place to be in. We talked about the reality that some people think, oh, I'm, I'm good, I'm good enough. God must want to accept me and that's not the case at all. Uh, we are all separated from God. There's only one that's good, that's Jesus Christ. And, and when we understand the desperateness of sin and the depravity of sin and, the, and the, the depression that that could cause in our own hearts, there's an extreme separation and an extreme despair that sets in. But we were able to contrast that then with the mercy of God. Because not only were we, are we in our sin, but we see Jesus who comes to make that right. And that through his mercy, because of faith in Christ, we who were far away are now drawn near to God. Isn't that great? So today we continue with the greatness of God and to look at his mercy. And, and to look at, today we're going to look at the exclusivity of Christ. And we're going to answer this question. Where else could I go? That's the sermon title today, Where Else Could I Go? We're going to answer that question. Uh, and uh, if you're in John chapter 6, we're going to pray. And then we're going to read John 6, 60 through 69. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful to be here today to, to open your word and to look into it. God, as we do that, may you open our hearts and our minds to be receptive to the word. God, we invite you to look in our hearts and, and to challenge us and to change us and to shape us. God, we want to be conformed into the image of the Son. We, we don't want to turn to the things that the world turns to. We don't want to look at the temptations of the world and say those are better. We want to see you as better and see you as best. Help us treasure you more today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're in, in chapter 6 of John, and we're going to start in verse 60. And we'll go through verse 69. This is just after, by the way, and, you, and I would again encourage you to read this passage. I think I've encouraged you a couple times in the last few months about this passage in particular. But Jesus is talking to disciples and the people around saying, hey, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you can't be my disciple, right? You, 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 that's where you find life. And of course, they wanted to take it to a fleshly place the same way Nicodemus said, how can I, as a grown man, go back into my mother's womb and come out? The woman, at the woman at the well said, how can I have living water? You don't even have a bucket to, get, you know, to give me water. The same way here, how can we eat of your flesh and drink of your blood? Right, that's gross. And they turned and they didn't follow him anymore. They, they turned away. And, and Jesus dealt with that. He said, this is about the spirit. But right after that, as people were leaving, in verse 60 is where we pick up here. And it says, therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, is this, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were complaining about this, asked them, does this offend you? Then what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some uh, among you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and the one who would betray him. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. From that moment, many of his disciples 
turned back and no longer accompanied him. So Jesus said to the twelve, You don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. An amazing statement from Peter here as he responds back to Jesus saying that there's, there's nowhere else to go. And so the question we're going to ask today is where else could we go? And, uh, and I know that's a little bit of a rhetorical question. Uh, it's meant to be a rhetorical question uh, for the sermon purposes. And hey, where else could we go? And the answer is nowhere. But, but really, there are lots as we can go. The question, though, is really where else could we find real living hope and life? And that answer is nowhere. We can go lots of places. We can pursue lots of things and, and make lots of idols in front of ourselves to try to satisfy ourselves, but there's really nowhere we can go to find real meaningful life except for Christ. So we're going to answer that question. We have five different areas uh, we'll answer. Where else could we go? Number one is this. Where else could we go? We can never escape his presence. So understand, like, we, we're thinking about going somewhere else. We can never escape his presence. In Psalm 139, we see this, verses 7 through 12. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. And if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I fly on the wings of the dawn and settle down in the western horizon, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will be as night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. The darkness and light are alike to you. Amazing story here, amazing, amazing uh, truth that, that, that we can't hide from God. We can't go anywhere to escape His presence. Now, we tend to do that, though, don't we? We, th- we tend to think we can because we, usually we model that based on our own relationships. Now, I, I'll start with my kids, the idea of kids. You know, when they want to do something wrong, they hide somewhere, right? When it gets quiet in my house and my kids disappear, I get a little worried, right? Like, what's going on? What are you trying to hide from me? And sometimes it's just they're trying to do some homework in their room, right? No, that's not what they're trying to do, right? That's, they don't do that willingly, not yet anyway. No, they're, they're trying to hide something. They, they, don't wanna, they don't want me to be in their presence. They don't want to be in my presence while they're doing what they probably shouldn't be doing or, or maybe even contemplating doing what they shouldn't be doing. They would feel bad. They'd feel exposed. They'd feel like someone was watching, and they don't like that. And, and so not only is that true in children, that's very true in adults, amen, that we do the same thing. We, we, try and, we try and hide our actions and our activities. We try to do them in secret or in private where people can't see and can't know. I was actually reminded of this last night as I was finishing up some notes. I came down to the office and, and I went into my office and now it's, it's, it feels a little exposed when you turn on a light in a building and it's dark outside. What do you usually do? You draw the blinds. Like, I don't, that's kind of weird. I can't see out. I, they can see in, so you draw the blinds. And I, I thought about that correlation. Like, wow, we don't like to be seen, right? We want to be now, it's just kind of weird in the dark. It's okay to close your blinds. But we don't like that. We don't like to be exposed. We don't like to be seen. And, and we do close the blinds. We do turn off the lights. We do try to hide from others or hide our activity from others so as not to be seen as bad or sinful or disrespectful. We hide. We escape. We try to flee from people's presence. But we also try to escape other things and for other reasons. Not only just because of our sin, but we, we try to escape pain. Right? We try to escape depression or despair. We, we try to escape from reality, and we try to escape from loneliness, and we try to escape from loss. There's lots of things we try to escape 
from, and we, we turn to in order to escape from those things. Good things we try to escape from. We try to escape from community. We try to escape from accountability. We try to escape from encouragement, especially in the times we need it the most because we feel like the greatest failure. We try to escape those things. But listen, we, we can't, we can understand, we might be able to escape community for a little while or accountability or encouragement, and that is a really bad place to be. But ultimately, we can never escape God. God is always present. He is always there. And whatever we're pursuing, wherever we are, He is there and He's longing for you and I to embrace Him instead of whatever we're trying to embrace. There's nowhere we can go to escape. Number two, where else could we go? Everything else is fading. Everything else is fading. Now we could say this in many different ways, but everything else is dying or everything else will end or everything else is, is not fulfilling. Whatever you want to say, it's all fading. I want to read a couple passages. This is the Psalm 115, not to be confused with 1215. Psalm 115, 1 through 8. Not to us, Lord. Not to us, but to your name we give glory because of your faithful love, because of your truth. Right? There's a steadfastness there. There's a covenantial uh, uh, plan for, from God there. There's a, there's a love of God there. There's something to hold on to there. Right? Uh, so because of your truth. Why should the nations then say, why, uh, where is your God? Our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but they cannot see. They have ears but they cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel. Uh, They have feet but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throats. Those who make them are just like them, as are all who trust in them. Listen, the the other things that we chase after are just things. They are not God. And it's interesting, isn't it interesting, you look at this text and and you think about the idolatry in our heart, the places we run. Every place we run to is typically a created thing, right? It's interesting how we, we tend to worship those things that we have created. Like we created it and now we've elevated above ourselves as God, as our only hope. And maybe it's the money you make. Right? Someone designed that and printed that. It's just a number in a bank account. Someone had to give that meaning and value, and that was from humanity. That's a God, a little g God. Maybe it's something that you bought and you own. Maybe it's the size of your house, the shape of your house, the color of your house. Maybe it's the, your family and how many you have a certain spouse and 2.5 kids, the perfect ratio. Whatever it is, though, those things that that we put in front of God are usually those created things that that mankind created, and they're worthless. They they can't produce. They can't fulfill like God fulfills. Paul saw this when he went to to Athens preaching, and this is Acts chapter 17. We see in the first verses 22 through 25, and then jumping down to 30, here's what he said. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respects. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. 
Now listen, this, Paul, Paul's there, and he's, he sees the heart of mankind. Now this is what's neat about Athens. Uh, a lot of places we go, uh, we don't just see the idols that they worship. We, we can maybe go to their house. If you get to know them, you can see where they spend their time and their treasure and their talent, and you can start to see what they idolize and what they place above God, right? But when Paul went to Athens, there's all these statues, there's all these created things, there's all these idols everywhere that people worship. And, and they wanted to cover all their bases, right? So they had all their idols and all their little G-gods, and then they, then they wrote one that's like, just in case we didn't get it right, to the unknown God, right? We've got it covered now. Everything is represented. And Paul, he sees that, and he's like, wow, that's neat. It's neat that you see the heart of mankind represented here, that you're chasing after every kind of idol, but you're leaving room now for an unknown God. And he says, therefore, what you worship in ignorance, the unknown God, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by human hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. Paul's sharing the gospel here, saying, listen, you... You've got it mostly wrong, but you're on the right track with this unknown God. Let me clear this up for you. There is a God that's not made with human hands or served with human hands like he needs something. Then he goes down in verse 30. He says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man that he has appointed. So Paul is again sharing the gospel, saying, listen, God has been patient. God has been willing to work with you. God has been willing to give you time. And he's overlooked these times of ignorance. And he, but now he's commanding everyone to repent, to turn away from those little G gods, stop pursuing those other things, and see the mercy of God and the righteousness of God in the man that he appointed. Who's the man that he appointed? It's Jesus Christ. Paul's sharing the gospel with these people of Athens. Then he goes on, he says, uh, not only is he going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he appointed, but he has provided proof to this. Here's the kicker. Here's the thing that makes all the difference between everything else. He's provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When we talk about the idea of where else could we go because everything else is fading, what it means is everything else will die. Everything else will end. Everything else will be destroyed or ruined except for the risen Christ. Religious figures didn't rise from the dead for you. Little trinkets of idols didn't rise from the dead for you. Uh, New car didn't rise from the dead for you. The perfect family didn't rise from the dead for you. More money didn't rise from the dead for you. Sexuality didn't rise from the dead for you. Politicians did not rise from the dead for you. Jesus did. There's nowhere else to go. So stop turning to the things that disappoint because His mercy is more. His mercy is greater. He has died and He has rose from the dead to give us life. Everything else is fading away. Number three, where else could we go? Nowhere. Only Christ has the words of eternal life. This is from our passage we read at the beginning in John 6. We'll begin in verse 66 and go through 69. It says, from that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. So Jesus said to the twelve, you don't want to go away too, do you? Now he wasn't weary, he wasn't wondering like, oh, are you going to leave me too? I need more followers. He wanted to see, do you understand where we're going? Do you understand who I am? And the answer was, 
an affirmative there. Uh, look at this. From that moment, many of his, his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. Turned back and no longer. People, we like to pursue other things. When we ask the question, where else could we go? We think of a million different options. And, and in futility, we tend to turn from those things and go in the wrong direction. So he said, you don't want to go away too, do you? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go or where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And he goes on, he says, we have come to know and believe that you are the Holy One of God. Listen, if you want real, satisfying, eternal life and hope and joy, then you need Jesus. And he explains that clearly in the Gospels. We've seen a lot of that as we went through the harmony of the Gospels and written so that you might believe. But let's see some of the words of Jesus. If his words are the words of eternal life, what are some of those words? Well, just earlier in this very passage in John 6, he says this in verses 35 to 40. He says, I am the bread of life. No one, comes, no one who comes to me will ever go hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you you've seen me, and yet you don't believe. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those that he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus coming saying, I'm the bread of life, right? Making this an allusion again back to the living water. He's the living water. And in him is life. And in him we have eternal life. And he will raise us on the last day because of his resurrection. Earlier in John chapter 5, he says this, Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word, again talking about the words of eternal life, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment but has passed from death to life. That we were dead and now we are alive because of Christ. There is life in Christ, and it's in Christ alone that we find life. These are, these are words of eternal life. They, they've come to, when Peter said this, he didn't just say, listen, we know you have the words of eternal life. That follow-up statement is so important. Listen, we know you, you have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe, and not just believe, but to know that you are the Holy One of God. It's, it, otherwise, you're just following another idol that you think has life. No, we, we've come to know and believe that you are the Holy One of God. We see this in Acts chapter 4. Peter is, again, preaching and responding back to his accusers. And he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he said to them, rulers and people, peoples uh, and elders, if, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, and by what means he was healed, so they had healed somebody and got arrested because they did it in Jesus' name. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. Now they don't like this. They don't like the fact that he's talking about Jesus again, right? Because it's the exclusivity of Christ thing. It's like, oh, it's all about Jesus. Jesus wants power and glory. and Well, yeah, he's God. He's the only one, right? Where else could we go? He's the only one that contains the words of eternal life. And, and he mentions this. He's scripture to them. He says, this Jesus, by the way, 
He is the stone that you builders rejected, which has now become the cornerstone. And he goes into verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Where else could we go? Nowhere is is the answer. The, the, The claims of Christianity, the claims of Christ are exclusive. It's Christ alone. Nothing else can bring life. Nothing else can give you eternal hope and joy. Nothing else can pardon your sin and take it all away through his own atonement except for Jesus Christ. He's exclusive. In John 14, 6, he said this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And it's amazing how people think this is like extremist kind of speech. Like, I can't believe you think there's only one way. I can't believe you don't. Jesus has claimed that. Only Jesus has shown that. Only Jesus has proved that. No one else has risen from the dead and died a death that actually we should have died. He didn't die a death he deserved. Only he did. Well, what does that exclusivity look like? Because we get so bent out of shape about it. Imagine this for a minute. Imagine that you were splunking. I'm sure you all love splunking or going to Shasta Caverns, right? Or you're, you're looking and, and, and you're in these caves and you have your flashlight and you get totally lost. Like there's, there's no way you're finding your way out. You have no clue how to get out of there. And you come across the guide, right? The guide is right there. You come around the corner there. There's the guide. And you're like, oh, I'm so glad to see you. Can you show me a way out? And the guide says, well, there's not, a, not just like a bunch of ways. There's only one way, right? Not just, there's, there's one way. I'll show you one way. And, and he draws a map where he leads you out. Let's say he leads you out the, out the cavern. Are you going to be upset about that? Oh, come on. You've got to give me more than just one way. I want to I find my own way. I, there's got to be another exit somewhere else. Not at all. And see, this is, this is the direness of us being lost in our sin. We need a Savior who is Christ the Lord, who who died and rose again for us to have life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way. We are lost, absolutely lost in the dark without Him. Thank God there's a way. That's that's the attitude we should have. There there is no other way, right? Where, Where else could we go? The answer is nowhere. There's one way out, and it's Jesus. It's kind of similar. It's a rescue mission, a rescue operation. See, we like to think of our life as our own. We like to think of it as like, well, I can just do my own thing. It's, it's like this big journey. It's like a, a choose-your-own-adventure story, right? My kids have found one of those on TV now. Like, it's not, you know, I used to read those. Now it's on TV, and you can say, okay, at this point, choose which way you would go. It's like an adventure show. They choose, I want to go in the crocodiles, or I want to go, you know, away from them. And they, they lose or they win. But there's multiple choices. And we like to think of life like that. Our life's like this adventure. We can choose our own way. Choose your own adventure. But it's not that way. We are in a desperate situation in desperate need of rescuing, and there's only one rescuer that is worthy to rescue us. And so to carry on that analogy, think about yourself in the middle of of some Arctic location. Right? There's, there's no roads in. You were dropped off by helicopter and, and you pushed the little you know, get out of here on your satellite phone and said, I, I can't do this. I need help. I need rescuing. And so a helicopter flies in and lands next to you. You're like, no, no, no. <laughs> no, no. It's too much dust. Don't, don't land here. It's too much wind. I don't want to. You're stirring things up. Go away. I want some, something else to save me. 
What are you talking about? You're in the middle of nowhere. It's the only thing that's going to save you. That's going to ride out of here on the back of a grizzly bear. It's not happening. The helicopter is there to save your life. And it's amazing, as I thought about the idea of the helicopter and the, the analogy of how, how um, important it was for survival for someone in the Arctic when they called for a helicopter to come pick them up. Think about how Jesus was, too. He was like that helicopter. And it's, it's, if, if you've ever been next to a helicopter, when it lands or takes off, it's not a fun place to be. Like that, the amount of force and wind that that thing puts off, it stirs up quite, quite the dust storm. If you're in the dirt, if you're near it on pavement, it's rocks flying around and wind. You lose your hat. And, and Jesus was like that, wasn't he? he? He came in, first of all, he was kind of quiet, but then as soon as he, his ministry started, I mean, he turned water into wine, then he went and he cleared the temple. This is a whirlwind happening. There, there are effects and ripples of what Jesus is doing, saying, I'm exclusive. And he made waves. And the teachers and religious leaders didn't like that at all, because there must have been some other way, the way that they thought they, they, they were leading, that's, that was the way to do it. Or people who are far from God, I want to escape from God, stop causing the dust storm, stop, uh, stop with the wind, I don't want to see this, I don't want to hear this, I want to be back and comfortable where I was. All the while, Jesus is this, this thing that's causing a stir that says, I'm the one, I'm the way. Come, find life in me. Where else could we go? The answer is nowhere if we're searching for real life. If we're searching for forgiveness, if we're searching to be made whole and to have peace with God, the answer is nowhere. And we see that God's mercy is more in the exclusivity of Christ. Thank God there's a way, and his name is Jesus. Well, where else could we go? Number four, nowhere. There's no one like our God. There's no one like our God. Exodus 15 and this is a, a, a song of praise after, uh, after being led across the Red Sea, and they, they just were praising God. It says, Lord, who is like you among the gods? Who is, who is like you, glorious, glorious in holiness, revered with praises, performing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. Talking about the Red Sea. It goes on in verse 13. With your faithful love, you will lead the people that you have redeemed. You will guide them to your holy dwelling with your strength. See, our, our God is the only one that has that strength to do that. Our God is the only one who can redeem. Our God is the only one who can guide. There is no one like our God. Matt read, Matt read this earlier in Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. It says, who, who is a God like you? I want you guys, I read this, to think about how great his mercy is, how, how supreme he is. Who is a God like you, forgiving iniquity and passing over rebellion for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not hold on to his anger forever, but he delights in faithful love. He will again have compassion on us. He will vanquish our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show shilty to Jacob and faithful love to Abraham as you swore to our ancestors from days long ago. Listen, he is a deeply covenanting God. And he's the only one, only thing out there, only person who can actually fulfill that covenant. He's the only God that can do that. He, he promises and he makes good on his promises. And listen, overall, there's no one like our God because he takes care of our souls. No one else can do that. Well, why is that important? That leads us to number five. Where else could we go? 
Number five, Christ is the one we will answer to. Christ is the one we will answer to. Why, why are we going somewhere else when we're going to be answering to Christ? Why do we go somewhere else when Christ is the one who can take care of our souls so when we answer before him, we are found righteous? Why would we go somewhere else hoping that somewhere else would apply for me in front of Jesus? He is the one to whom we will give an account. Hebrews 4.13 says, no creature. When it says no creature, it means not one single one of you. Not one single one of us. No creature is hidden from him. But all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of of him to whom we must give an account. You can try to hide, you can try to cover up, you can try to run away, but you can never do that. We are all going to be exposed before him, the Lord Jesus, to whom we must give an account. We will all stand before Christ and answer for ourselves. What will you say? Where would you have turned? Well, Jesus, I I turned to this, and this seemed to help a little bit. Wrong answer. It's Jesus or bust. Why? Well, Philippians tells us this. Verse, uh, chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. It says, Christ humbled himself. Right? The God of the universe came into human history and put on human flesh, and he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on us. That's what he's done for us. There's no other God like ours. For this reason, because he was humbled himself to the point of death on a cross for our sins, for this reason God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow. Not every knee that loves him, not every knee that turned to him, Every knee. Why? Because no creature is going to be hidden. Every knee will bow before him because he is worthy. And he is the one to whom we will give an account. He says this in Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31. It says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then then when he sits on his glorious throne, all the nations, all again, all peoples, no creature hidden, will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and, and the goats on his left and uh, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Verse 41, then he will also say to those on the left, depart from me. You who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It's not just arbitrary, by the way. See, Jesus is no God like our God. Jesus came in exclusivity saying, I'm the rescue mission. I'm the one that can save you. I'm the one who took your place on the cross. I'm the one who forgave you through the shedding of my blood and through faith in Christ. That if you would come to me in faith, you were in a life because my life didn't stop there and end there. It rose three days later. See, Jesus offers that, but there must be an atonement for sin. And if you and I think that whatever we're pursuing right now would, would stand up before God as, as righteous, we've got another thing coming. On that day, the good shepherd will separate the sheep from the goats. There will be those who have believed and trusted him in faith, and there will be those who have, have pursued whatever else they could find. And they are not righteous before God. We see John chapter 5, 
Similarly, in 22 to 24, it says, The Father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Again, where else could we go, right? He's the one to whom we must give an account. He's given all judgment to the Son, so that all people may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Okay, so this is not just like, well, Jesus is a figurehead. I, I, my relationship's with God. People love to do that, right? They, they discount Jesus, but oh, God, it's God. And they turn what should be God, Yahweh, Elohim, into a little G God, a, a feeling like the force in Star Wars. That's not it at all. In fact, here he's saying the Father is honored, but the Son is to be honored in the same way. Because the Father has given the Son the ability to judge. In verse 24, he goes on, Truly I tell you. Here's the promise. right? We're talking about sheep and goats. Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment but has passed from death to life. You see, we see Jesus as the judge And Jesus is the one to whom we're going to give an account. We're all going to stand before him. What will we say? Well, right here it says that anyone who believes in in him or believes him who sent me has eternal life. So if, if we would come to Christ in faith, trusting that he was the provision, that he made the provision, that what he accomplished on the cross will stand the judgment seat of Christ as well. And anyone who believes will not come under judgment and has passed from death into life. That's why the exclusivity of Christ is so great, because in Christ we will not be judged. If we're out of Christ, we will be. I want to read a a little excerpt out of this book. It's another one of those Easter books I'm reading called The Characters of Easter, written by Daniel Darling. He says this, To whom will we go? This is why we pause every spring, and gaze at the bloody cross and an empty tomb. It's why we drag ourselves out of bed on cold Sunday mornings, week after week. Why? Weary and sorrowful and not sure about anything, we come to Jesus in jumbled prayer. We have nowhere else to go. We have nowhere else to turn. Jesus has the words of eternal life. As we look at the mercy of God and how, how much more His mercy is, what we see is in that rhetorical question, where else could we go? And the answer is nowhere. I'd also say there is no need to go anywhere else. When you found Christ, you have found life. Where, and, and the other question I'd have for you is this. Where else might you be going right now? What might you be turning to instead of Christ? Christ is the one who can satisfy, the only one who can satisfy, because His mercy is more. Amen? Would you stand with me as we close in prayer? Father, we're so grateful as we look to Your Word today that, that You are the one with words of eternal life, that You bring life. You bring us life through Your death and Your resurrection, that You're the only one who can satisfy the justice of God. And you have satisfied the justice of God. That through faith in Christ, we can turn to you. 
and be saved, be rescued. We thank you that you are the way. We thank God that there is a way to be rescued. God, I ask that you would continue to remind us of that as we examine our own hearts, our own lives, and we ask the question, where else might we be turning? Where else might we be going? God, I, I pray that we would throw those, those answers aside and God, throw those idols aside, those insufficient things that we're looking to for pleasure or contentment or life or satisfaction, and we would find it in you alone. We thank you, we praise you, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.